Appreciate it. And our plans, of course, uh, were changed. We did not have the uh, Christmas that we had planned for. We got up on Christmas morning and had Christmas as a family at our house, having been with you on Christmas Eve. And then we uh, left late morning to go see my mom for uh, a couple of days. And we'd only been there for a couple of hours when we got word that her brother, my uncle, had uh, passed away that morning. Now, this was the uncle that uh, had never married. And so uh, while he was my uncle, he was really more than that. He was the uncle whose house I spent uh, many summers with going there for weeks at a time, and he's the one who took me fishing and camping and all of those kinds of things. And so it was a difficult time for us. And so last Sunday, we came back, uh, I think on Friday or Thursday, uh, stayed here a couple of days, and then we went back on Sunday for a funeral uh, on Monday, a visitation on Sunday and a funeral on Monday. And so uh, things just, uh, it was just a different, different Christmas than we had anticipated. Our Christmas dinner was McDonald's. It was the only thing open on Christmas afternoon after we'd gotten the news. And so uh, I had a quarter pounder with cheese for my big Christmas dinner this year. And I'm sure we will always remember that. But thank you for your prayers and your expressions of uh, encouragement. Um, You know, none of us know the future. We do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so while I am reminded of that through our Christmas, the truth is we are reminded of that all the time because we don't know what this new year is going to bring. And yet, in spite of the fact that we know we don't know that, we make those resolutions every year, don't we? This is going to be the year. We are, we are convinced this is going to be the year that is different than every other year. This is going to be the year when we really do not only make those resolutions, but fulfill them. We are filled with hope when a new year begins, even though we don't know the future. And even though statistics tell us that only 25% of New Year's resolutions are still committed to just 30 days later. So by the end of January, three quarters of the New Year's resolutions are gone. And only 8% are actually fulfilled long term. And yet we make them every year, don't we? With great hope that they are actually going to come to pass. In fact, I looked up the most popular New Year's resolutions from last year. Obviously, the statistics for this year are not out yet. The top 10 New Year's resolutions from last year should surprise no one that the top three were all body or physical related. The top three were about losing weight or exercising, those kinds of things. Our image matters to us, and so those were the top three. Number four was financial. That is a desire to spend less or save more. There was only one in all of the top 10 that had anything to do with relationships. And that was number 10, which was spend more time with family. But there were none of the top 10 that had anything to do with spiritual resolutions. None. Now, that may not surprise you, given the fact that this is likely a secular statistic and a secular survey, but the truth of the matter is, when it comes to us as Christians, spiritual resolutions ought to be a prominent part of our New Year's way of thinking. That is, if we are going to make resolutions and seek to make changes in our lives, there ought to be a spiritual element to it. After all, we claim that our spiritual life is the most important aspect of our lives. 
And therefore, we ought to be thinking about what needs to change this year spiritually. If you were with us on Wednesday nights, you know that uh, one of the last, in fact, the last series I did last year on Wednesday nights was a look at various men and women of the faith who were, were prominent in the Christian religion in the last couple of hundred years. One of the men we looked at was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in the New England area, and he still is regarded by most as the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. Jonathan Edwards came up with 70 resolutions. Not, not New Year's resolutions. These were things he came up with as a young man, and then he strived to follow them for the rest of his life. Obviously, he didn't come up with them all at once. He would add a few here and there. But ultimately, as a young man, he came up with these 70 resolutions that he read every single month to remind himself of what these resolutions were and what he was striving for. Now, the interesting thing is that all 70 resolutions that he tried to live by, they were all spiritual. It was not about watching less TV or doing this or that. They were all spiritual resolutions. Now, having said that, there were actually some physical resolutions in there. He actually did mention things about what he was going to eat or what he was going to drink, but even then, he did it for spiritual purposes. By that, I mean that even those physical resolutions were designed so that he would physically be at his best for the purpose of serving the Lord. So even his physical resolutions were not about a, a better body image or being more popular. It was about making himself available to serve the Lord. And so what I'm saying to us this morning very simply is that if we are going to do resolutions, there ought to be some spiritual elements to it. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I do believe Scott mentioned this briefly last week, and I intend to expound upon it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews, we do not know exactly who that is. Many believe it was the Apostle Paul, though we cannot prove that, which is why the letter of Hebrews comes where it does in your New Testament. It is placed after all of the Pauline letters because of the possibility that he wrote it, and yet we are unsure of it. But whoever wrote this letter is clearly using here an athletic imagery, an athletic illustration. The main verb in the verses we've just read comes at the end of verse 1 where it says, run the race. That is the key thought in these verses. And everything before and after it in these three verses modify that idea or help explain the idea of what it means to run the Christian race. Now, the word for race is the word from which we get our word agony. 
And some of you think exactly, that makes sense. Running a race is nothing but pure agony. I mean, it takes a lot of work. Races are not passive activities. You have to plan for them. You have to prepare. You have to get yourself ready physically and mentally. It takes discipline, determination, and perseverance, which is why this is a great illustration for the Christian life. Now, obviously, in order to win a race... Step one is you've got to enter the race. You cannot win unless you're part of the race. So spiritually speaking, I'm going to assume, and I know that that's a a tough thing to do, but I'm going to assume that you have entered the race. That is, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Everything else I'm going to say this morning is going to hinge on that being true in your life. Now, if that's not true of you, then we want to encourage you to make that step, to take that step, And we would love to be able to explain to you what that's all about. But I'm going to assume that you've already entered the race. Now, having entered the race, it is now time to talk about how we must make every effort to finish the race. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? So he's using an illustration from a race again, just like the author of Hebrews. All of them run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Now, this is one of the issues with illustrations. They don't always match up. So we're using the race as an illustration of the, of the Christian life. And the difference here is that in the Christian life, we can all win. That is, this is not a race where the fastest person, the one who crosses the finish line first, is the only one who wins. In the Christian life, in the Christian race, we can all win if we persevere until the end. This is not a race of works. This is not a comparison between what you do versus what I do or the service you give versus the service I give. And the one who has the most is going to be declared the winner at the end. This is a race of faith, which means that more than one can win, all of us can. But we do desire to finish And in finishing, we do desire the prize. Now, the prize is not heaven. Heaven is given to us as a gift when we are saved. And so the prize is the glory of God and the heavenly rewards of our earthly service that we will one day receive. So again, I'm assuming that you've entered the race. And now what we're talking about is persevering, striving to finish the race so that we can come to the end of our lives, whenever that might be, and say with the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words to young Timothy, knowing that his life was coming to a close, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, that's our goal, and the next phrase is, I have kept the faith. When we finish the race, it means we've kept the faith. So the first thing I want to talk about when it comes to this race is to realize that you are not alone. You are not the only one in this race, though it might feel like that sometimes. Our text begins with the word, therefore. And if you've been around here long enough, you know that that is not just a conjunction that is moving from one thing to the next. That tells us that there is something in these two sections that go together. That is, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's a connection between what I've just said and what I'm about to say. So that every time you see the word therefore in Scripture, you've got to ask yourself, what is it therefore? 
So we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews chapter 11 is what we sometimes call God's hall of faith. We call it that because the word faith is all over that chapter. It is a chapter that goes back into the Old Testament. Another example of how those who say we do not need to know our Old Testaments because we're New Testament Christians don't understand the Bible. You can't understand Hebrews chapter 11 without understanding the Old Testament. And so it's going back to the Old Testament, and it is telling briefly the stories of men and women of the faith. And the reason we call it the Hall of Faith is because numerous verses begin with those two words, by faith. By faith, so-and-so did something. And over and over again, we see that same scenario throughout that entire chapter. And so the picture here that we take from this is sometimes that these are observers of our lives. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So there are those who say, if we're going to continue the race analogy, that we are on a track perhaps, and all of these Old Testament men and women are in the grandstands. They are watching us, and they are cheering us on, and they are encouraging us, and they are desiring that we finish even as they have finished. Now, to that, we might add our own loved ones, those who have already gone to be with the Lord. But my question is, does this text talk about a heavenly audience? I don't know about you, but I'm not sure it's overly encouraging to think that men like Abraham and Moses and Joshua are watching my every move. I'm not sure that's encouraging. In fact, I think that can be somewhat paralyzing to think that those men are watching me to see whether I'm going to finish the race as they did. Now, what you notice there is it says surrounded. It does not say that they were hovering over us. It does not specifically say that they are watching us. Though, again, I understand that this is an interpretation of these verses. But in the context here, I think it does not support necessarily a heavenly host watching us so that we might keep our faith and they will not be disappointed in our performance. Rather, I think what we find here is these Old Testament saints are examples for us, not onlookers. That is, we are to look to them as examples, as encouragement, rather than they are looking to encourage us. These stories are told... The writer of Hebrews told these stories so that we might be encouraged to know that we are not in this alone. Nothing is more encouraging than to know that there is someone who has done successfully, I might add, what you desire to do. That is, that you can look at their life and see that they went down a similar path that you planned to go down and they were successful in it. That's why we like to read biographies, right? We like to read biographies because they tell us the real-life stories of men and women, and we get to see the principles and the discipline that they apply to their life, and we get to see the outcome of that. And the assumption then is if I do something similar, I will have that same outcome, so it encourages me to live in a similar manner to what they live. And what Hebrews chapter 11 is, in essence, is a bunch of mini-biographies. I mean, it's just short statements about what these men and women did by faith. Therefore, that's an encouragement to us. After all, the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God that worked in their lives, producing the results that we see in those Old Testament stories, can also work in your life and mine in similar ways. 
But not only do we see the Old Testament heroes here to realize that we are not alone, we also can add to that our modern companions. Now, I realize that these verses do not spell that out. So I realize in some sense I'm adding a little bit here, but I'm not adding it out of the blue. I'm adding it from what I see throughout the rest of the New Testament. As you read the letters of the New Testament, specifically the letters of Paul, you will come to see that Paul is almost never alone. Have you noticed that? Now, there are circumstances where he is alone. Don't misunderstand. But more times than not, by far, Paul has other men and women around him. He is not the maverick church planter that we sometimes think he is that blows into town and plants a church and then leaves and goes to another one. He does do some of that, but he doesn't do it alone. He always has, or almost always has, other men and women surrounding him, some of whose names we know, some of them we don't know. So if Paul and the other New Testament apostles knew the importance of shared ministry and life, I think it's essential that we understand that as well. Jesus exemplified this truth. Didn't he surround himself with 12 disciples? Like, like I just mentioned about Paul, Jesus was almost never alone either. He was almost always with these other men. And then he sent the apostles out, not individually, but he sent them out in pairs because he knew the, the importance of shared ministry and life. And that is why I consistently talk about how we need to be involved in church. Now, I realize you think I do that because I'm a pastor, and partly that's true, I'm sure. But I do it because I see it all over the New Testament. I see the importance of church. I see the importance of corporate worship. I see the importance of, of small group Bible studies, whether that's Sunday school or life groups. It is in these environments that we have the opportunity to witness other people who are striving to follow Christ even as we are. And it is in these environments where we come to understand that they have similar struggles to what I have, that they're going through some of the same things I'm going through, that they're trying to overcome some of the same sins that I'm trying to overcome. And therefore, it's an encouragement to know that we are not alone. We have these Old Testament heroes. We have modern companions to remind us that the life of the Christian, the Christian race, has never been meant to be run alone. We run it together. You know, some of you know that I run, not as much as I used to or not as much as I should. I used to run more, and the reason I used to run more in large measure is because I used to have a group that I ran with. Four or five mornings a week, I was expected to be at behind the local high school, and we would meet there with a group of, I don't know, 10 or 12 different men and women, and we would run three or five miles. And when it was difficult to get out of bed, it, it was... It was an encouragement in some sense to know that there were people waiting on me. They were expecting me to show up, and so it urged me to get out of bed. Not to mention the fact that if I didn't show up, I was going to hear about it. Especially because I had the unfortunate aspect of my house being on the route we ran. So if I didn't show up, when they ran by my house, they were yelling, trying to wake me up. So running in a group is always easier. It keeps us going. You know one of the things I got tired of over Christmas? Those Peloton commercials. Have you seen those? I mean, I heard that over and over again. Peloton is trying to bridge the gap between group accountability in exercise and yet our desire to want to do it at home for convenience. 
And so they're trying to bridge that gap by saying, you can do your exercise at home and still be with a group by video technology. And I, assuming they're, I assume they're doing a good job at it, although rather expensively. And so they're trying to get that mentality of the accountability with other people to help you exercise. And all I'm saying here is that the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing spiritually. He is saying to us that we are not alone in this Christian race. There are men and women in the past who have run it and run it well. And there are men and women beside us today who are doing the same thing. These Old Testament heroes and these modern companions are there to encourage us along the way. Now, the second thing we need to see is that in this race, we need to remove any obstacles. There are two parts to this particular aspect. First of all, we see the removal of any weight. That word for weight is a word that is found only here in all of the New Testament. Some of your translations may use the word encumbrance. In this case, it's important to understand that when we are talking about a weight, we are not necessarily talking about a sin. We're going to get to that next. But a weight does not have to be something that's in and of itself bad. It is simply something that is in your life that is holding you back. It is weighting you down from running the race effectively. Now, obviously, that's going to be different for our separate lives. But we need to look at our lives and see what is it that is potentially preventing me from running this race efficiently. It might be something like sheer busyness. I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with what you're doing. It's just you're doing too much. And you're so busy that you're having a hard time prioritizing your spiritual life. Though, again, you're acknowledging that your spiritual life is your priority. But you're so busy with other things, you can't get anything done spiritually. It might be misplaced priorities, whereby we are taking on things that are good. There's nothing wrong with them, but we are doing so at the expense of other things. I mean, there's an example of this, multiple examples, I'm sure, but one example I'm going to use comes from Acts chapter 6. There, the apostles have a dilemma. They are in ministry, and part of their ministry is they are ministering to the widows in the church. Now, that's a good ministry, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It is an effective and needed ministry in their time and ours. But in doing that, they were then not able to do what they were called to do, and that was preaching and prayer. So they were not able to focus on what God had called them to do because they were doing a very good ministry that the church needed. And so they recognized that, and they appointed other men who could help them in doing those things so that they could do what God had called them to do. And that's an example of understanding that the priorities had gotten a little bit out of line, and others needed to come along and help. You know, several years ago, there was an article that talked about the top 50 things that we need to change or do. You know what number one was? Our priorities. So the number one thing most people need to change is their priorities. And the author went on to explain how none of us can do everything. And that is why it is essential that we know what is important to our particular lives and our particular gifting and calling. If you are a believer, then running this race should be a top priority. In order to do this well, there may be some things that you need to eliminate from your life in order to free yourself up to run this race. Any runner knows that you don't weigh yourself down with extra weight. 
no runner runs a race with added weight because that hinders them from running well. And so the same is true spiritually. But there is a second thing that needs to be removed. Not only must we remove the weight, as he's mentioned here, but then he goes on to talk about sin or what we might call wickedness, this sin that clings so closely to us. That's another word that is only found here in all of the New Testament. It means to exert tight control or cleverly placing itself around us. It's a pretty good definition of sin, isn't it? Cleverly placing itself around us, slowly tightening its grip and drawing us further into its web of deceit. Sin weighs us down, diverts our attention. It saps our energy and dampens our enthusiasm and passion for the things of God. We think we're getting away with it, and we convince ourselves that it's not really bothering anybody else and really not bothering us either. Therefore, no harm, no foul, and we go on with the sin. But the writer here of Hebrews is reminding us that sin does have an impact, and it does affect how we are running the Christian race. Now, in all likelihood, he is not referring here to a specific sin. Rather, the author is just talking about sin in general. But even though that's what the author is talking about, that does not mean that we probably ought not to be thinking, or we probably should be thinking, I should say, about a specific sin. In other words, he's dealing generally because he's speaking to a large audience, but some of us need to be thinking more specifically here. I dare say that there are sins in our lives that perhaps nobody else knows about, that we've battled for a very long time. And here we are at the start of another new year and we've said this is the year that I'm going to finally overcome this sin. And yet in the back of our minds, we know that in all likelihood, we're gonna have the same problem we had last year. And we're gonna feel guilty about it, but we're gonna fall into that same sin over and over again. We've tried it before, we've not been successful. You're determined at the moment, but it's just January 5th. And therefore, if you really think about it, you're probably going to fall again. So how can we remove the wickedness in our lives and not fail again? Well, first of all, we must realize that it is only done by the grace of God. It is only done by the grace and power of God. In other words, what we're talking about this morning is not primarily your willpower. It is not primarily greater determination, as in if you'll have more determination this year than you did last, you'll finally succeed. That's secular ways of thinking. We're talking about understanding that even as we are saved by grace, the grace of God can empower us to overcome whatever sin is in our lives. That God always provides a way of escape. As Paul mentions, I believe it is in Corinthians. And so we need to understand that this is a spiritual battle. These spiritual resolutions are fighting spiritual battles. So we realize that we are only going to be successful by the grace and power of God. We cannot do this on our own. And having realized that, then we recognize the seriousness of sin. I mean, until we recognize that sin is indeed a serious matter, we will not get aggressive about removing it. And as you well know, we live in a culture that laughs at sin rather than treating it seriously. And we Christians are affected by this mentality as well, which is why we must recover a doctrine of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. Understanding just how serious God is about sin and developing our own hatred toward it as well. After all, it was for your sins that Christ died such an excruciating death. 
We spent the bulk of last year in the Gospel of Mark. And in the latter portions of the Gospel, the last third, that last third taking up the last week of Jesus' life, we looked at some of the details, not just of the death of Christ, but the preliminary events that led to that death. And we saw how difficult that was, not just physically, but emotionally and even spiritually uh, upon Jesus. He did not suffer and die for our sins so that we could continue to live in them guilt-free. He suffered and died for our sins so that the penalty for our sins could be removed and the power for, for eradicating such sins could be in our life. So we've got to take sin seriously. And thirdly, after recognizing the seriousness of sin, we must repent and acknowledge specific sins. That's why I said a moment ago, even though the author here might be general in nature, we need to get specific. We must agree with God that what we are doing is, in fact, sinful. Repentance is a word that, it's a military term. It literally means uh, sort of an about face. You are going in one direction. You recognize that the direction you are going is the wrong direction, and so you turn around and go the other direction. It is a change of mind that results in a change in action. That is, the change in mind, I come to confess that this is indeed a sin. That is, I'm in agreement with God. I'm no longer justifying. I'm no longer rationalizing. I'm no longer blaming somebody else. I come to terms with the fact that what I'm doing is a sin in God's eye. I agree with him on that, and therefore I repent and begin going the other direction. Now, that doesn't mean that we will never commit that sin again. But it means that we understand that it is indeed a sin and we desire to go in the opposite direction. Many of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that I mentioned a moment ago dealt in some form or fashion with repentance. And if you know about Martin Luther and his 95 theses that he nailed on the church door in Germany, you know that statement number one was about the fact that the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. This is not a one-time act. This is an ongoing daily battle that we have whereby we are constantly confessing specific sins and repenting of them. And then we rejoice in God's forgiveness. That forgiveness is free, but that does not mean it's cheap. But when God says he forgives us, we need to accept it and rejoice in it. He offers us that, which is not a license to sin more, it is a gracious offer of cleansing and renewal. That's sort of what we think about at New Year's. We think about how, well, it's a new year, the slate's clean, I'm going in a different direction. Well, God gives you that opportunity every day, not just in a new year. God gives you that opportunity every day to come clean with him and confess and repent and then rejoice in his forgiveness. So if we are going to run the Christian race... We need to remove the obstacles of weights, which could be anything that is hindering us, and wickedness, which is specifically dealing with some aspect of sin, allowing for the fact that this is an ongoing project. It is not going to happen overnight or just once. Do you notice that the author quickly adds that we must do these things with endurance or with patient endurance? We want a quick fix. We want to say a prayer and get the answer, but it's usually not that simple. It can happen that way. I'm not disregarding that, but I'm saying that the general method is that this is an ongoing struggle in our lives. We are going to stumble. We are going to fall, and so we might as well admit that. 
But at such times, we simply follow the same steps again. We confess and repent. We seek the forgiveness of God. And by the power of God's Spirit, we rejoice in that and move on. Understanding that this is an ongoing issue because, as the writer says, this sin clings to us. It does not let us go easily. If you've ever been in the woods, for whatever reason, whether it's hiking or for me looking for golf balls, you've probably found yourself in a, in a batch of briars. And they are clinging to you. They're stuck to your shirt or jacket or your pants. I, I'm confident that I have ruined shirts and jackets that are worth far more than the two or three golf balls that I find. Because those briars cling and they don't want to let me go. So you know the experience of trying to free yourself from a patch of briars. And that's the, that's the imagery we're getting here. That sin is not going to let you go easily, but you and I have the power of God in our lives as believers to overcome these sins. Thirdly, we need to refocus our attention. And this is a vital aspect. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus. There's the refocusing of our mind and our eyes. You see, when we talk about doing these things, when you, when you talk about New Year's resolutions or whatever term you want to use for it, specifically when it deals with, with giving something up, well, I'm, I'm not going to eat sweets this year. By the way, that's not my New Year's resolution. I'm just, it's just an example. What we tend to do when we come up with something like that is that's what we focus on. I'm not going to eat sweets. I'm not going to eat sweets. I'm not going to eat sweets. So what am I thinking about? Sweets all the time which makes it all the harder to actually fulfill what I'm trying to do because I'm thinking about it all the time. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that our focus is not primarily to be on those weights and the wickedness that we're removing. Yes, that's part of it. But verse 2, keep your focus on Jesus. That will help us more than anything else. This element is often neglected. It's, it's often forgotten. And yet it is significant in this entire process. As we think about Jesus, our desires for sin decrease. As we keep our eyes on him, the potential for us to sin diminishes, never goes away, but it diminishes because our focus is on Christ. Therefore, it becomes easier, not easy, but easier to obey. The hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, he's not talking specifically about sin, but he's talking about anything on this earth. As we focus our mind and eyes on Jesus, the things of this earth begin to pale in comparison so that our desires for them slowly diminish because our focus is on Christ. And because our focus is on Christ, we then can overcome these other issues that we've been dealing with, these other sins that we've been battling. So we need to gaze upon Jesus as our Savior. And I, and I mean, when I say gaze, I mean we really need to think about it. We need to ponder it. We need to weigh it over in our minds. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is the source of our salvation, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. We like to take credit for everything. Credit for our salvation does not belong with us. It belongs with God. 
He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who sustains us from beginning until end, from the initial act until the completion. It all belongs to God. So gaze upon the source of your salvation and you'll discover over time that sin becomes less enticing. We also need to gaze upon the cross of our salvation. And again, I mean really thinking about it again, as we did in Mark. As we went through the passion narratives in Mark's gospel, I don't know what your response was, but, but I tend to think I know what it wasn't. We didn't study those passion narratives week after week, and you left here thinking, I'm going to go sin some more. That, that wasn't your response. Because when you saw what Christ went through in order to pay the penalty for your sins, when you saw the separation from the Father and heard him cry out, you didn't go away saying, great, now I can sin more. No, when you took time to gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ and see what took place there, even though we cannot totally fathom it, you at least went away seeing what it cost him and therefore not wanting to sin. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, reminding us that he endured the shame, or he endured the cross and despised the shame. And as we gaze upon that, it has a sanctifying effect on our lives. That is, we don't want to sin like we used to. And thirdly, we need to gaze upon the completion of our salvation who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's an imagery of completion. Why is Jesus seated? Because the work is finished. That's what he said on the cross. Tetelestai, the debt is paid in full. It is finished. And that is symbolized by the fact that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Therefore, it is complete. So even as he preserves us, as we talked about recently, we are to persevere. So as we refocus our attention on Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our sustainer, then we get to verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that is, gaze at these things, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is, so we don't quit. I mean, isn't that why so many New Year's resolutions are never finalized? Because we grow weary? Because we lose hope? Because we don't finish? And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, if you'll keep your gaze on Jesus Christ, see that he is the author and finisher of your salvation, see the, the shame that he took on you, see the endurance on the cross that he went through on your behalf, if you'll keep your gaze on Christ, it will encourage you so that you not only start the race, but you finish it. You know, I, I went to the gym January 1st. And you know what I found there? I've never seen so many people on the treadmills. I mean, I knew it was January just because of the crowd at the gym. But you know what I also know? Come March or so, those people aren't going to be there. Happens every year. People decide they're going to run the race, they're going to get in shape, and then they quit. And that's what happens in the Christian life a lot as well. We get excited, we decide we're going to be faithful, we make some spiritual resolutions, and then a couple of months later, we grow faint-hearted and we quit. Because somewhere along the way, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus.
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Again, I am assuming, perhaps wrongfully, but I'm assuming that you are in the race. If you're not, we'd love to talk to you about what that means. But I'm going to assume that you have already entered the race. And so what I'm talking about is trying to help us run the race faithfully so that we can finish well. So what I'm asking you to do is consider making some spiritual resolutions. Again, I know Scott mentioned this last week. And by spiritual resolutions, I am not just talking about read my Bible more, pray more, or go to church more. Those are great, and perhaps you need to do that, which is why we do the read through the Bible every year, and we've already started that, and you can still join us. But those aren't very specific. So that when you come to the end of the year, and, and all you've said is, I'm going to read the Bible more, I mean, you, you don't know whether you've done it or not. So we need more specific goals than that. So I'm asking you to consider making some spiritual resolutions, goals, desires, whatever you want to call it. I'm not hung up on the word resolution. But what I'm asking you to do is simply to to recognize that your spiritual life is your priority. It is a far greater priority than how you look physically or how much money you need to make this year or, or something else you need to accomplish that you really want to accomplish. Your spiritual life is your priority. So make it a priority by setting some goals. And then you're going to have to be specific about what those goals are. It might be to shed some weight spiritually. It might be to remove some wickedness, that is some sin. That sin you've been battling for a very long time. It's time that you overcome that and realize that it is weighing you down and you are going to be more excited in your walk with the Lord if you'll get rid of it. So I don't know the specifics for you, but I'm simply asking very generally that we prioritize our spiritual lives and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me pray.